for many regular, ordinary citizens who are not highly politicized, the experience of the uprising and the period that it ushered in of more open political life wasn't successful, and, and that's a dangerous precedent. Welcome to episode 15 of the TCF World Podcast. This is Thanasi Kambanis in Beirut. Today, we're going to talk about the road to democracy and whether it's paved with elections. I'm joined by Sima Ghadar here in Beirut and Michael Wahid Hanna in New York. Uh, thank you both for coming on uh, the TCF World Podcast. Thank you for having us, Thanasi. Thanks, as always. The thing that got got me thinking about uh, this question, and I mean, this you know, there's a lot of el- of other things going on in the world right now that seem more urgent and pressing, uh, and it and it can distract us from some of the uh, more tectonic trends. Uh, and uh, we're in the middle of another season of elections in the Arab world uh, that, in a way, is reminiscent to me of, of the mid 2000s. And uh, Michael's uh, written a bunch about the uh, recent election in Egypt that re enshrined the authoritarian regime of. Abdel Fattah Sisi, uh, Sima has just done a lot of research and has a forthcoming report about the parliamentary elections in Lebanon and the limited uh, possibility of reform they seem to invite. And I just got back from a trip to Iraq where I was looking at their big uh, post-ISIS war election, which uh, has some some potential to be the first uh, post-U.S. occupation election where there's a little bit of a flare of nationalist and post-sectarian politics. Uh, and all this got me thinking of the big democracy thesis, uh, the, the, the question of how much elections are part of the process of democratization. To start, um, I want to ask you, Michael, since, since you've been lo- taking a close look at an election that is not much at all about uh, uh, democracy. Um, If you can tell us a little bit about what you see when you look at elections in Egypt and how that relates to the democracy thesis. Well, it's an issue that has a lot of background in the sense that the mid-2000 election uh, and elections, if if we count the parliamentary side of things in Egypt, did have a role to opening up political space. It was a semi-open but semi-controlled environment Uh, where at least there was some semblance of opposition politics, civilian-led opposition politics. Of course, that's quite distinct and different from what Egypt has now. Uh, And uh, this was not a competitive election. Uh, There wasn't even any semblance of competition. Uh, And the regime, uh, the CC regime, went out of its way to call the field of any credible or semi-credible candidates uh, with very specific attention to the possibility of former military men running in the election, which crossed the red line for a variety of reasons. In that authoritarian context, why, um, I mean, from the outside, it's almost surprising that CC cares so much about the patriarchy of elections at all. Why, why invest to begin with in that show of a performance of, of voting? It's uh, an expectation um, that there are elections. There is a constitution that says such things must happen. Uh, I think the international community, for all of its hypocrisy, uh, would have a hard time um, staring at authoritarianism presented baldly. um, And uh, and frankly, there's a kind of uh, play acting that goes on with respect to the Egyptian people. Uh, So... It is a a kind of artifact, and peculiarly, uh, the regime 
is very keen to at least be seen to be checking some of these boxes um, to suggest that they're having elections. But as I mentioned, there were there were no real candidates. It was effectively a referendum. Uh, let's shift uh, Sima to Lebanon, where you know the same group of corrupt uh, warlords has been ruling over the country for several generations now. Here, what if any relationship does the the, the pageant of elections uh, have to uh, the creating conditions for accountable rule or democracy or or anything that's that's different than the status quo system? I think in Lebanon it's much trickier in the Lebanese context because you don't have an authoritarian system per se. You have a limited or a fragile democracy. And in that sense, you do have opposition politics, you do have an open political space, you actually have a bit too much space to criticize political bosses or a corrupt elite, especially after 2015. Um, so you tend to think that elections would be that perfect space so that you can practice more opposition politics. The problem with that is that we tend to forget that elections are necessarily based both on the election law and at the same time on electoral machines. And what happens is that elections at some point become a two-sided tool. It either becomes a tool that um, any opposition or anti-status quo groups could actually use to enter into um, politics in the strict sense of the word, um, but also it can be a tool for political bosses to actually just extend their tentacles of how their networks or their patronage networks actually manage themselves. So it's actually yet another opportunity for the political elite to spread their patronage networks and at the same time to use the election law to do so. So I think in Lebanon, it really depends on the electoral battles and how they're actually practiced. I think it is an opportunity. Elections are an opportunity, but a very, very limited one. Um, if anything, I think sometimes they're used to provide more legitimacy to the ruling elite. To me, this is a question that we have, I think, more data about, or at least more observations about now than we did uh, at the end of the Cold War. There was an assumption that uh, even in a flawed context, the practices of party politics, campaigns, and running for office would create uh, sort of secondary benefits. And that even in an authoritarian context like Mubarak's Egypt, or maybe even Sisi's Egypt, uh, an oligarchy like Lebanon's, uh, occupied Iraq, and so on, that even with all the, the caveats about, about how elections aren't the same thing as democracy, uh, that this process is supposed to create uh, stakeholders, create citizen pressure, create accountability cycles, and people who are steeped in a certain amount of political know-how who later go on, for example, as Ayman Noor did in Egypt, or as a whole generation of civil society activists in Lebanon have to, to grow out of these flawed party politics and try and do meaningful things. Uh, now, to me, it's an open question uh, whether today authoritarians, or in Lebanon's case, and Iraq's case, corrupt sectarian warlords have figured out how to game the system and have essentially come to figure out how to play the elections game without actually giving any quarter at all. Uh, and so we don't get these second order benefits. What's your sense of that? Having in Lebanon's case, almost uh, 30 years now of post-Civil War elections to look at, a second cycle of post-Syrian occupation elections to look at. I actually think this time, this election does actually show these benefits much more than any other election. Uh, because what it does is that if it doesn't provide you with the opportunity to win a seat in parliament, it really 
allows you to reach political maturation. Um, what that means is that before civil society groups or NGOs or anti-status quo groups were more um, complaining or protesting from the outside. Now that they have to actually set up their own electoral machines, they get to really get a sense of how deep the electoral machines of the corrupt politicians are and what they depend on, if they depend on political brokers or if they depend on certain electoral gatekeepers and what are the roles of these different individuals during an election so that they can eventually know if they were to mobilize after the elections, how is it that they can do so? So they, they sort of mimic the same project, but they just remove the sectarian from the formula. Michael, uh, what's your sense of that same question applied to Egypt? Obviously, it wasn't and didn't play that kind of role, um, but it could. I mean, thinking about why would anybody keep this kind of thing in place, um, you know, setting aside you know, the authoritarian rationale for holding an election, trying to create you know, even a very flawed sense of the renewal of legitimacy, um, it does provide uh, the mechanisms, at least the structures, for potentially, for political opposition and dissent in the future. Um, it's obviously far from that now. It is nothing like that. It doesn't provide that kind of opportunity. But it's hard to say um, what that looks like 10 years down the road. And, and it's something we talked about a lot during the Mubarak era, that in a sense, even this semi-controlled space gave life to something a little bit more. Uh, and it created... Uh, the forum in which relationships could be made. So, um, you know, in the case of Egypt, uh, we're far from that previous kind of political interaction. Uh, but if we think about the possibility for future regeneration, and that's not a given, um, but it is a possibility. And in that sense, politics through electioneering and campaigning uh, might offer a pathway for that kind of regeneration in the future. And I would think, you know, a sort of argument by the opposite position is, you know, if, if, if elections didn't matter at all, and if a sort of token uh, presidential run or token opposition in parliament meant nothing, then CC wouldn't have gone through such lengths to make sure that he didn't even have to deal with the kind of very minor and tokenistic uh, representational politics that Mubarak uh, tried to manage. And that, I mean, I'm wondering if that's, if we should take it that way, that CC is essentially telling us this stuff really does matter. And that's why I'm using so many resources to make sure I have literally not even a guaranteed to lose presidential contender who's not totally under my control. Yeah, you hit a very important point. And it tells us something very important about the mindset of this regime. Um, and the lessons that they learned from the uprising in 2011, namely that they are never going to allow those kinds of forces to emerge that could challenge them in the future. It is a kind of preventive as opposed to a preemptive approach to politics. Uh, these aren't current threats, uh, but we, you know, meaning the regime, are not going to allow those threats to even begin to gather. We are not going to allow these kinds of relationships to form. We are not going to provide these kinds of platforms for an opposition. Uh, we're not going to see 2011 again. That's not going to happen. Um, and as you say, one of the ways to ensure that that doesn't happen again uh, is that even these minor efforts at dissent or opposition aren't going to be allowed to succeed. Seema, what about the ruling class in Lebanon? Uh, they 
finally agreed on a new election law in the last year to govern these elections. How does it respond to the pressures for uh, better representation and better governance that have risen in Lebanon? I would say it's two-sided. Um, it's quite funny, actually. Um, so the same actors that instantiated a corrupt system and a sectarian system and that sort of um, divide up spoils among themselves and quotas are the same actors that now are promising change and anti-corruption movements and they want to make sure that every single candidate is clean. So it's all, it's like the, everything is about morality now. Did anything change structurally though with the way people are elected under this new law? Uh, yes, I mean the districting is quite different. Uh, the districting is much more based on sectarian um, divides, um, basically demographically, because I mean that's also related to the post-civil war situation. And at the same time, what happened is that you do have a proportional system, but it's a proportional system where you have to pick um, a list, but you also have to pick one preferential vote. And in Lebanon, as always, the seats of parliament are distributed according to a quota-based uh, distribution, a sect-based distribution, I mean. So in that sense, in every single district, sects have certain seats. And it happens that in a district, you have the majority of the sect, let's say, is Sunni. That means the candidate that would win on one of the lists would be most probably Sunni. But so this, this creates like a, 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 it creates a very difficult decision for the voters and at the same time it creates a lot of competition among individuals within the same list and across lists. So at some point it's like everybody has to take care of their own selves. And, and nothing fundamentally was reformed about that despite a huge amount of public desire to see a better, a better system. Um, what happened with the election law specifically is that there were too many issues at the table when it was passed. And I know that one of the candidates that I spoke to as part of the anti-status quo groups actually told me that it was only after the election law was passed and when the election season started and when they started campaigning and when they had to form lists is when she realized how really messed up this law was. Order from Ashes. New Foundations for Security in the Middle East is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability. You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. Hi, this is Tanasi Kambanas, TCF World Podcast. I'm still with Sima Radar in Beirut and uh, Michael Wahidhana in New York. We're talking about elections. Uh, right before the break, we were talking about the really deeply weird and flawed election law that governs Lebanon's elections uh, and in which the, the sect or religion uh, of, the, of the candidate and the party is really more important than any uh, political identity. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, this is a really... This is a really important framing because, uh, uh, among other things, this distorted system has has been credited, perhaps erroneously, but it's been credited with keeping Lebanon uh, from falling back into war since 1991. And uh, it has sadly, in my view, been adopted by a much bigger country, Iraq, in the wake of the U.S. occupation. So they sort of borrowed uh, the the transactional sectarian apportionment system of, of Lebanon, applied it to this much larger country that had previously not really had, uh, although that had sectarianism in, in politics and society, it did not have an overtly sectarian political system. And now today it's got uh, same kind of, of deal where 
the top offices in the government are allocated on a sectarian basis, even though that's completely informal. It's not written anywhere. It's not in the Constitution. Uh, in Lebanon, the president's Christian. The prime minister is Sunni. The head of parliament is Shia. Uh, there's a, a slightly different apportionment in, in Iraq. And it's not written down anywhere. And yet um, the, the, this norm that's been around in Lebanon for more or less since 1943 in Iraq got enshrined almost instantaneously. Uh, and one of the interesting things uh, I heard from people last month when I was there was this hope uh, that they can break that cycle now because they, they feel, and I think correctly, that if those sectarian power sharing divisions remain the norm after this election, that they will just be unbreakable, that they will somehow become part of the landscape the way they are in, in Lebanon. You know, all that's to say, are elections part of break, like breaking these, these warped practices? Can elections in any way do that? Or are they too much public theater that privileges groups that already have a lot of money and power and therefore are always going to be uh, most easily malleable by, by the status quo powers? I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts on Iraq, but you know what we can say is that that these elections seem. I think they've been. It's been overstated how much of a change um, has taken place within Iraqi politics. I think that's slightly exaggerated, but I mean I think we can say that this does offer some opportunities. Um, maybe not at the list level in the ways in which uh, politics is organized on the ground, but maybe in the process of government formation. You know, this is an opportunity. People have begun, uh, Iraqis have begun to talk about the possibility for something different. Um, and so it is, it is this, this momentary opening that allows for some kinds of incremental change. Um, and I think that's probably what, we, you know, there's not going to be a sea change in Iraqi politics, but it at least offers that opportunity. I mean, I, I just need to add something to that. I mean, I definitely do believe that it offers an opportunity. I think you can, what you make out of the elections is what the elections eventually would mean. So it's how you use the elections. Um, but also, I think what I've seen, in, what I've seen in the elections specifically in Lebanon, is that it it really does away with this with this divide between I'm doing politics from the outside, or I'm doing politics from the inside, or I'm doing pol low politics or high politics. And what what happens in elections because you're trying to enter into government, but at the same time you have to mobilize at a very grassroots level to be able to do so. So it really just sort of erases that divide and it, it sort of tells you that politics is really doing both of them all at once, as opposed to saying I'm an NGO or I'm a grassroots movement, but I don't run for elections. Well, so, right, and, that, and that's, I think that's a real important central organizing principle, which is that there's not, there's not some kind of clean division between like real politics on the one hand that are about issues and platforms and like awful politics, which are about sectarian mobilization and patronage and identity. Politics is about all those things and successful politicians can uh, organize a campaign, grassroots uh, act action, high level action, sleazy deal making, contracts, all the rest of it. That's, I mean, that, that is what politics is. Um, now, one of the one of the things that goes back to Michael, what you were asking in Iraq, the real change I noticed it's not this um, the sort of national moment that people idealists have hoped for. Uh, it, it's not so much 
that. It's not that there's a huge change in the way people view themselves, but what is different and largely demographics matter here because it's a heavily Shia majority country. So most of the politics that matter now are Shia politics. The importance of what that means has started to fade. So if every major party and every major coalition has as its umbrella uh, a Shia group that has deeply similar demographic roots, religious constituents, et cetera, it becomes uh, necessary to have support from other sects and it becomes necessary to have some kind of political identity in addition to the Shia identity. Um, and that was that was the most visible change that I noticed. Um, every single one of these groups, including the the, the sort of hyper-militant Hashid uh, PMU uh, groups that got strong in the, in the war against ISIS, they have Sunni partners, some Kurdish partners, some other minority partners in their lists and in their local power structures. Uh, and this, is, this isn't some kind of kumbaya transformation, right? It's not that these groups no longer see themselves as Shia sectarians. It's that they are now transactional Shia sectarian uh, politicians who can do political business with, with a, a wide range of other people. And the things that they're trying to get done have to do with uh, not with great governance. They have to do with extractive deals and, and keeping control of certain areas. Uh, but that already is a major change. And, and it's curious that in Lebanon there hasn't been that kind of change, that even the corruption and patronage networks uh, tend to remain sort of single sect even when they work in cooperation with each other. So you have a, a, a Shia network or multiple Shia networks, multiple Sunni networks, multiple Christian networks, and so on. I think, I think you have to be very careful just to say that some kind of intersectarian cooperation is always like a, a good sign because here in Lebanon in these elections, you see the sectarian elite really forming very bizarre alliances with, with, with previous enemies, with allies. It's just, it makes no sense at some point. But what happens is that even when you have a semblance of intersectarian cooperation, what that means, they're just dividing certain quotas across districts among themselves. But you were right, Thanasi, to say that what happened in Lebanon at the long term um, is that you had these enclaves. And, and, and what happens is that because the districting of the election law is based on these demographic uh, distribution, basically when you're campaigning in a certain district, especially those that have a majority of a sect, that one political party or one specific political grouping would have um, such a deep network that you can't really just go through that very easily. Um, and, and that's really one of the major challenges that a lot of anti-status groups have, have faced. I mean, there are areas that they say, um, I'm just not going to waste my time and run in any of these districts because I really can't challenge how intricate these networks are. So, Michael, uh, pull back for us and think for us in sort of historical terms. We're at a moment uh, where... The Trump presidency has brought a lot of uh, bigger norms into question where uh, principles that guided the post-World War II order, uh, including neo neoliberalism or liberalism, uh, multilateral institutions, and, and lots more are being called into question. Uh, I wonder and, and I fear if uh, in the Arab world and in the wider Middle East, if the repeated cycles of elections 
that either enshrine authoritarianism or essentially serve to frustrate any desire for meaningful change and reform are going to lead people to reject wholesale the very concept of electoral politics uh, as a building block towards rights, liberalism, reform, change, and, and things that I associate with democracy and think of as, as unequivocal goods. Uh, are, are we at such a dangerous point? Uh, probably. Uh, and, you know, if we look at the case of, of Egypt, I mean, one of one of the byproducts of the uprising, uh, its ultimate failure um, and the kind of uh, destabilization that it ushered in um, has been a kind of apathy uh, for some people. Uh, politics is not only not particularly interesting, but um, something to be shunned. Um, and the lessons for some people are that these processes and institutions that we oftentimes extol and see as foundational for um, the possibility of good governance um, didn't produce. Now, of course, it's, it's not a, a particularly fair assessment. Um, it's not as if these uh, institutions were given time and support and, and essentially given a fair shake. Um, but the impact on people's lives, many people's lives, it was uh, was quite negative. And I'm, I'm I'm not talking about those politically active kinds of citizens who have been caught up in the repression. Obviously, those people have a very distinct impression of of this moment. But for many regular, ordinary citizens who were, are not highly politicized, the experience of the uprising and the period that it ushered in of more open political life wasn't successful. And, and that's a dangerous precedent and has has formed very distinct thoughts, I think, in, in the minds of, of some. I wouldn't say all, um, but, you know, the certitude of determinism surrounding democratization has obviously been quite eroded, shaken by, by uh, recent events. And we're in a reactionary moment. Um, how that plays out, I mean, obviously, is is an open question, um, but I think it's it's dangerous to assume that um, eventually there will be course correction. Um, if there is a course correction, it's going to take quite concerted efforts on the parts of uh, a lot of individuals and political leaders. Sima, do you think uh, people in Lebanon, whether it's voters or the or the parties and activists themselves, uh, think that elections are are part of a, a path? to greater democracy here? Um, yes and no. Um, with regards to the voter, um, the Lebanese voter is a very, very harsh critic, and I would say a very unfair critic sometimes. Um, I mean, what, what, what Michael was talking about, this, this attitude of apathy, of, of, of like a disenfranchised voter, um, is still very much present in Lebanon, less so than before 2015 when the protest movements um, against the garbage crisis had happened. But um, so you, you have a little bit of both. The activists and the anti-status quo groups or opposition groups are, in a sense, believe that they have to be idealists about the prospect that elections might be one of the roads to a better democratic system, um, or else they just wouldn't do anything. And they're trying with their idealism to sort of push people to believe in that idealism. I mean, I mean that's, that's one of the ways. Another is that the Lebanese voter 
Um, just to add, the, that, that kind of attitude has created a new sense of civic duty in a lot of the Lebanese youth, especially students at universities. Um, but the Lebanese voter, the ordinary voter, um, much less disadvantaged voter, just wants things to get, to get his services, his, his or her goods. And with that, they just say they want the person that can bring that the fastest or the person that can actually survive within that really dysfunctional democracy that Lebanon is. And to them, it's not the idealist that is able to do that. Um, it's actually perhaps the politician that they can, that probably will speak in the name of providing services and then eventually has to, because now they feel like they have a sense to represent better, but also the politician that knows how to work the system. Well, and that's, uh, I think we're, we're at the end of our time, uh, but uh, that, that seems to be the thing that some of these election processes get right, which is uh, they offer a way for elites to renegotiate their internal power sharing agreement. What uh, elections in Lebanon and Iraq, uh, which I think are among the better in the region, have not done is offer a pathway for a low cost way for new entrants to come in and claim a slice of, of governing power. Uh, and, and I think that's probably by structural design. Uh, thanks so much for joining me, Seema Ghadar and uh, Michael Wahid Hanna. And this was the 15th episode of the TCF World podcast, Is the Road to Democracy Paved with Elections? TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>